Welcome to Trivial Knowledge, a little bit about a whole lot. My name is Stephanie, and I'm excited to bring to you this next episode of Trivial Knowledge. I hope you enjoyed learning about the topics of today's episode as much as I did. It was interesting to learn about Apollo 1 Commander Gus Grissom's life as a NASA astronaut, and I'm excited to learn about the other two Apollo 1 astronauts in future episodes. I also enjoyed virtually traveling to a little-known valley in Switzerland. Anyway, before we start, here's a little bit of background for those who are listening for the first time. Each podcast episode brings you a weekly dose of knowledge from five different topics drawn from four broad categories, and to add to the fun, one topic will be acquired from a random Wikipedia page. With such an extensive range of topics, there's going to be something here for everyone. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now let's dive into episode 13, Artists, Valleys, and Soccer. Social Sciences Appointment to the Order of Canada, the Commemorative Golden Jubilee Medal, Governor General's Award in Visual Arts. These are recognitions that anyone would love to have on their resume, and they were all earned by First Nation Canadian artist Daphne Ojig, who also was an activist for Indigenous artists. Born on September 11, 1919, at the Wikwemikom Unceded Indian Reserve on Manitoulin Island in Ontario, Canada, She was the first of four children for parents Dominic Ojig and Joyce Peachy. Her family was very artistic, and they were one of her inspirations for becoming an artist. In 1925, she began attending school, and art quickly became her favorite subject. Unfortunately, seven years later, she had to withdraw from formal schooling after completing seventh grade due to a severe case of rheumatic fever placing her on bed rest for six months and taking her three years to fully recover from. While she missed school, she was able to spend more time with her paternal grandfather who lived in the family home. He was a stone carver, mainly carving monuments and tombstones, but greatly influenced her discovery of art. Her parents also encouraged her in her artistic pursuits and were artistic themselves, with her mother enjoying embroidery and her father drawing. Tragedy struck at 18 years old when she lost both her grandfather and mother in the same year, and shortly after, her and her siblings moved to Parry Sound, Ontario to live with her maternal grandmother. When World War II started, she relocated to Toronto along with her sister Winnie, and she found work at various businesses, including John Inglis Munitions and Planters Peanuts. She took advantage of her location in Toronto to further pursue her artistic interests, visiting the local art galleries frequently to study different techniques. She also met her first husband, Paul Somerville, who was serving in the military, and the two married in 1945, moving several times over the next decade for his job. Upon her marriage, she became a stepmother to his 8-year-old son David, and three years after their marriage, the couple had another son, Stanley. During this time, she continued to explore various art mediums and different artistic styles that she learned about from books and magazines that she read. 
1958, the family bought a 30-acre farm near Coltis Lake, British Columbia, with plans to grow strawberries. But unfortunately, two years later, Paul Somerville died in a car accident. She remained on the farm for another year before getting her first big artistic break when she entered her painting, Theatre Q, in a competition and was elected to the British Columbia Federation of Artists. That same year, in 1962, she married her second husband, Chester Beaven. Over the next several years, she continued to paint and draw, including series based on the hardships experienced by the Chimawawin Cree who were displaced by the man-made dam built at Grand Rapids, and a series on legends of the Wikwemikong. In 1971, she and her husband opened a small craft store in Winnipeg, which was expanded and renamed the New Warehouse Gallery in 1974, the first Canadian gallery that was First Nation owned and operated and exclusively represented First Nations art. In 1973, she was one of the co-founders of the Professional Indian Artists Incorporation, also known as the Indian Group of Seven, who helped to bring First Nation art to the wider community. A quote from one of the other founding members, Alex Javet, was published in a CBC article by Zuluka Nathu in October 2016, and he said of the group of seven, Daphne was the one who pulled us together. Daphne had the vision to recognize that it was as a group we would be able to make a breakthrough with the art we were doing. The art world in Canada was not accepting us at that time. While short-lived, the group was an important pioneer for indigenous art development in Canada. Daphne's early artistic works were realistic, but as she grew as an artist, she developed her own style, a fusion of aboriginal pictographs and art techniques. With European and 20th century style, she learned as a resident artist in Sweden. According to the same article quoted before, the National Gallery of Canada describes her work as Defined by curving contours, strong outlining, overlapping shapes, and an unsurpassed sense of color. Themes that her work focused on included human suffering, relationships, culture, and the importance of family. For her artistic achievements, she was the first woman to receive the eagle feather from the Wikwemikom Reserve, an honor typically reserved for hunters. OJ broke a lot of barriers throughout her artistic career including being the first First Nation artist to have her work displayed in an art gallery, being one of four artists chosen to paint a memorial to Picasso at the Picasso Museum in France, and having the first First Nation-owned art gallery in Canada. I'll leave you with one last quote on her artistic achievements from an article published on the Alberta Native News website on June 25, 2019. The author says, the visual motif central to her work is the circle, which to the Ojibwa signals completion and perfection and is symbolic to woman. This motif is characterized by undulating rhythmic lines, often heavily outlined, enclosing local color and soft, harmonious shades. Her subject matter deals with human relationships in the context of indigenous culture, the importance of grandparents, the function of the family unit, and the universal theme of mother and child. Sports and entertainment. Their emblem, the double-headed eagle of the Byzantine Empire. Their colors, yellow and black. 
the same colors found on the Greek Orthodox Church flag. Founded in 1924, Ike Athens was established by Greek refugees who flooded back into Greece from Constantinople after the Greeks' defeat in the Greco-Turkish War. Those who founded the new club were originally members of the Para Club, a Greek soccer club located in Istanbul, whose members relocated to Athens, and on April 13, 1924, met in a sports store, officially founding Ike Athens. The team found success early on, leading to a quick growth in the fan base for this newly established team. The team's first president was able to convince the government to set aside land for eventual construction of a stadium for the team. At first, land in the Athens suburb near Philadelphia was going to be used for refugee housing, but instead was set aside to be used as a training ground for sports in 1926. Four years later, the training ground was officially signed over to Ike Athens and the plans to build a stadium for the team was approved. The stadium was called the Nikos Goumas Stadium after a former club president, but commonly referred to as Nia Philadelphia. On November 2, 1930, the first official match was played in the stadium between Ike and another Athens club, Olympiakos, which finished tied at 2-2. The team's first silverware came in the 1931-32 season when they won their first Greek Cup competition, defeating Iris 5-3. The team continued to find success in the 1930s and 1940s, winning the double in 1939 in league championships in 1940, 1946, and 1947. By the end of the 1950s, the team had become so popular that tickets were selling out a new construction began on the stadium to increase its capacity. Interestingly, in 1964-1966, the team won the Greek Cup without having to play in the final match. In the 1964 season, the second leg of the semifinal match against their would-be opponents was not played due to major riots that occurred in the first match. In 1966, Olympiacos did not show up to the final match in protest due to the elongation of the campaign season because several matches in the cup competition had to be rescheduled. The 1960s were another successful decade for the team as they became the first Greek football club to reach the quarterfinals of what was called the European Champions Cup, now known as the European Champions League. The 1970s were known as the golden era for Ike Athens, with some of the best players to have played for Ike playing during this time. Another great team that played some of the best soccer in club's history was played under manager Dusan, a former player who became manager of the club in 1988. The club won three consecutive championships between 1992 to 1994 but Dusan left under discouraging terms when he joined the team's rivals Olympiacos to become their manager in 1996. The end of the century ended bad for the club as a massive earthquake in 1999 significantly damaged their stadium and the team had to relocate to Athens Olympic Stadium where they still play today. The Neo Philadelphia Stadium, their home for over 70 years, was officially demolished in 2003 the plans have been in work to build a team in new stadium at the same site. The club's luck didn't get any better over the next decade when on April 19, 2013, the Super League Disciplinary Committee docked the team three points for storming the pitch during a match that occurred on April 14th. 
and as a result, they were relegated to the second-tier football league for the first time in the club's history. For those who don't follow soccer as closely, being relegated to a lower tier is a huge deal, from both a financial standpoint and from the ability to sign elite players to your team. Due to financial difficulty and massive debt, though, the team elected to self-relegate even further, down two full tiers, and start over, basically from scratch. The club quickly turned themselves around, returning to the Greek Super League only two years later. Today, Ike has become one of the most decorated Greek soccer teams, having won the Greek Super League 12 times, the last in 2017 to 2018, and the Greek Cup 15 times. Science and Technology Today, we will be starting a four-part series in the Science and Technology section of this podcast, which will focus on the Apollo 1 mission and its astronauts. For today's episode, we are going to learn about the amazing achievements of Apollo 1's commander, Gus Grissom. Grissom was born on April 3, 1926 in Mitchell, Indiana, to parents Dennis David Grissom, a Baltimore and Ohio railroad signalman, and Cecile King Grissom. He was the eldest of four children and had two younger brothers and one younger sister. As a child, he was a Boy Scout and served as leader of the Honor Guard for his troop. To make money, he delivered newspapers twice a day and in the summer worked in local orchids, picking peaches and cherries. He attended Mitchell High School where he excelled at math and met his future wife, Betty Moore. Upon graduation, World War II was in progress and he enlisted in the Army as an aviation cadet. He reported for duty in August of 1944, but the war ended before he had a chance to train as a pilot and instead he spent most of his enlistment working different desk jobs. He left the service in November of 1945, four months after he married his wife Betty Moore, and went to work at the Carpenter's Bus Body Works. His dream was still to become a pilot, specifically a test pilot, and he enrolled in Purdue University, earning a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering in three and a half years, while also working 30 hours a week. For anyone who has earned an engineering degree or has taken engineering courses, you know how impressive this achievement was. After graduation, he again entered into service, this time joining the Air Force where he finished cadet training, finally earning his wings. In less than a year after this accomplishment, Grissom was deployed to Korea where he completed 100 combat missions in 6 months, flying a F-86 Sabre for the 334th Fighter Interceptor Squadron. It didn't take him long to be shot at either, which occurred on his second mission, and this is a quote on that experience published in an article by Mary White on the NASA website under Detailed Biographies of the Apollo 1 Crew, which I will have a link to on my website. Grissom said, I was flying along up there, and it was kind of strange. For a moment, I couldn't figure out what those little red things were going by. Then I realized I was being shot at. Grissom flew the wing position, protecting the lead pilot, and he was proud of the fact that neither he nor his leaders, he flew wing 4, ever got hit. After he completed his 100 missions, he requested permission to fly an additional 25, but the request was denied and he was sent home. After his time in Korea, he worked a variety of assignments, including as a flight instructor for new cadets, and eventually obtained his dream job, earning his test pilot credentials in 1957, 
and transferring to Wright-Patterson to test new jet fighters. While working at Wright-Pat, he received a top-secret message asking him to report in civilian clothes to Washington, D.C. A quote from him from the same article as before on his thoughts on receiving this message says, Well, in the Air Force, you get some weird orders, but you obey them, no matter what. On the appointed day, wearing my best civilian suit, and still as baffled as ever, I turned up at the Washington address I'd been given. I was convinced that somehow or other I had wandered right into the middle of a James Bond novel. It turned out he was one of 110 military test pilots who had been chosen to acquire information on the space program, specifically on the new NASA program, Project Mercury. After passing physical and psychological examinations, one of which he almost failed because he had seasonal allergies, until he told the examiner that he would be fine as there is no pollen in space, he was selected as one of the seven chosen to become America's first astronauts on April 13, 1959. After going through extensive training, Grissom would become the second American in space, aboard his capsule MR4, which he named Liberty Bell 7. The mission was not without complications, though. Changes to the Mercury capsule had occurred between the first flight and his, including adding a newly designed explosive hatch that would open when the astronaut hit a special plunger inside the capsule with 5 pounds of force. There was no issues with his launch, his capsule's parachute, or the capsule's initial landing in the ocean. But as Grissom was preparing for his capsule to be picked up by the recovery helicopter, Hunt Club, the explosive hatch blew off on its own. Water flooded into the capsule, but Grissom was able to safely escape the compartment. After briefly becoming tangled in lines used to attach a dye package to the capsule, he was able to swim away. Grissom watched as a helicopter attempted to lift Liberty Bell out of the water, but the capsule had become too heavy and the helicopter was forced to cut the ropes, ending with the capsule sinking. While the helicopter was fighting with the capsule, Grissom began noticing it was becoming harder and harder for him to stay afloat. It turned out that he had left an air inlet port on his spacesuit open, and air was linking out, causing the suit to become less buoyant. Thankfully, another rescue helicopter showed up, and they were able to get him aboard the helicopter. The first thing he did on board was throw on a life vest. After his Mercury mission, Grissom realized that it was unlikely that he would have the opportunity to pilot another mission, as there were too many astronauts in front of him before his term would come up again. Because of this, he left the Mercury program and began helping with his successor, the Gemini program, whose capsule would house two astronauts instead of just one. He was able to use his mechanical engineering and test pilot skills to help design a capsule that was friendly to pilots. He had so much input into the capsule that it became known as the Gusmobile. Once the other astronauts came on board, it also had to be resigned a little bit, as it was built around Grissom's 5 foot 6 inch frame, and 14 out of the 16 astronauts were not able to fit inside. Alan Shepard was to command the first Gemini flight with Grissom as backup, but Shepard ended up being grounded for a medical condition, and Gus Grissom took his place as commander, with John W. Young a Navy test pilot as the pilot of the first flight, Gemini 3. Grissom chose Molly Brown for the name of the capsule after the Broadway musical The Unsinkable Molly Brown as a tribute to his first Mercury mission. Molly Brown launched on March 23, 1965, 
completing three orbits, flying 80,000 miles in five hours, and showing spacecraft can be maneuvered in space, all before splashdown that same afternoon. This mission was a success, and Grissom even got to enjoy a corned beef sandwich smuggled on board by John Young. NASA did make it clear afterwards that no corned beef sandwiches would be found on future flights. On March 1966, NASA announced that Grissom would be commander of the first Apollo 1 mission. But as we know, Apollo 1 caught on fire during a test with the three men inside. And Gus Grissom died on January 27, 1967 at 40 years old in Cape Kennedy, Florida. During his remarkable career, he earned the NASA Distinguished Service Medal and has been inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame the U.S. Astronaut Hall of Fame, and the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Next week, we will return to the Apollo 1 mission and remember senior pilot Ed White. Geography and World Culture Today, we are going to travel to a little-known valley in Switzerland, known as Ansonone Valley, located close to the Italian border and the home of 682 people as of 2018. Ansonone Valley is a scenic valley that has many small villages located on a sunny mountainside. Its citizens mainly speak Italian, though about one-fifth of the people speak either German or French as well. Several of its villages were gathering spots for artists and authors, as the location is picturesque and quiet. The area was known for its farming and straw craft, but then due to the decline in these areas, a lot of men and families left town to find work elsewhere. Some of the families ended up earning tremendous wealth in foreign countries and returning to the area later, building large mansions in several of the small villages in the valley. One such town in the valley is Loco, which was the main village of the Ansernone Valley in the Middle Ages. Today, it is known for its museum and its mill. The local mill dates back to the 18th century and was one of 27 mills operated in the Ansernone Valley. It was restored and reopened in 1991 and produces the traditional corn flour of the valley known as Farina Bona. This corn flour has a distinct taste that comes from the toasted corn kernels used to produce the very fine flour which is made using special grinders. The mill is one of two working mills in the valley, the other located in Virgiletto, which was reopened in 2013. The museum was established in 1966 and has several different exhibits that focus on life in the valley, including collections on the straw industry, traditional woman costumes, cases of emigration, work and daily life, and artistic expressions. Another location that draws some tourists to the area is the Palazzo Gamboni Hotel, which is located in Comolagno, the second to last village in Ansernone Valley. It was one of the mansions built in the 18th century by returning emigrants who had massed their fortune elsewhere. The building used to be the meeting place of many artists and writers, including Max Ernst and Elias Canetti. In 1996, it was obtained by the citizens' community of Camolagno and converted into a hotel. An extension was added to the original building, housing three additional rooms, a sauna, and two whirlpools. It has been a member of the Swiss Historic Hotels since 2011 
Many people also visit the valley for its excellent hikes, views, including an alpine lake located above the Virgiletto village. I have attached a website for one of these hikes to my website. Another village in the area, Verzona, was a favorite place of famous writer Max Frisch. In 1964, he bought a stone house and split his time between Verzona and Zurich, the place of his birth. A quote from an article from the Ticino website tells of his thoughts on Verzona. He says, the village of Berzona lies some kilometers from the Italian border. It has 82 inhabitants who speak Italian, and there are no restaurants, not even a bar. Every visitor who comes to this place immediately says, this air and this calm. This valley is a perfect place for those looking for a calm, quiet, beautiful valley to hide out and write. Today's random topic. Our random Wikipedia page brings us to a, well, I didn't think I ever say these following words, but an interesting type of fungus called Septobasidium. This fungus, which grows on the underside of branches and leaves of deciduous trees and shrubs, has developed a symbiotic association with scale insects. This relationship was first noted in 1907 by scientist von Honnell, who discovered the insects living underneath the fungus and believed that a relationship existed between the two. It wasn't until John Couch, a botanist at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, suggested that the relationship was mutualistic. These particular scale insects lack a natural scale and use the fungus as cover to protect them from predators and environmental conditions. The fungus produces chambers which house one insect each and about half of these insects in the chambers are parasitized by the fungus. What this means is that the fungus inserts specialized hyphae-like needles for feeding into the insect's body, and then the fungus obtains the nutrients from the insects as the insects obtain nutrients from the plant sap. These insects who have the needles inserted into them are paralyzed and sterile. In the springtime, the non-sterile insects are able to lay eggs, which are fertilized by males who are allowed to roam through the fungal tunnels. The larvae that hatch from the eggs crawl through the tunnels in the fungus to the surface where the fungus has produced spores which become stuck to the larvae's body. The larvae then either crawl back into their birth fungus home, move to a neighboring colony, or create a brand new colony. In this way, the insects are the sole providers of fungal dispersal. I will attach some articles to my website for those interested in learning more about this interesting relationship. And that concludes this episode of Trivial Knowledge. A little bit about a whole lot. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope you were able to take away some interesting facts that were new to you and that you can share with friends and family or at your local trivia night. If you would like to learn more about topics that you enjoyed today, you can access links to more in-depth articles on my show notes blog post on my website www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. That's www.trivialknowledgepodcast.com. If you have questions or would like to leave comments about today's episode, please email me at trivialknowledge5 at gmail.com or contact me via social media links on my website. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. 
I look forward to our new adventures next week when we will learn about Serbian cuisine and much, much more. I will end this episode with a quote from Amy Tan in her book, Saving Fish from Drowning. You will remember only what you want to remember. You know only what your heart allows you to know. Join me next week to learn a little bit more about a whole lot.